I have a special interest in the tabernacle, the Old Testament place of worship, and it's fascinating to me that in that courtyard, people like the family of Samuel, uh, Samuel's parents, rather, uh, the Samuel, uh, Elkanah, and Hannah, and Penina, would come there annually to worship. And in that courtyard, feast in the presence of the Lord and inquire of the Lord and sing with joyful song. We are that tabernacle. That tabernacle was a was a, a, sing, a symbol to Israel that God was in their midst as they marched out on campaign. And uh, much like the Assyrian and Babylonian armies, even the Roman armies later, that the general or the king would camp in the midst of the soldiers. We are soldiers of Christ. We're on a campaign to conquer the world, not with the sword and spear, but with the sword of the Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're here to inquire and to admire His beauty and glory. This evening, we'll continue looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. I'll be reading the first 22 verses of that. Uh, actually, that's the whole chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to the end of the chapter. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the age of this world, and according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand, so that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the, the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, in the flesh by human hands were at that time apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile both to God into one body through the cross, 
thereby slaying the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by the one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Well, we're not going to cover the whole chapter, but for the context, I wanted to read that. This evening, I want to think with you about this great and glorious and magnificent building that God is in the progress of constructing. Jesus said to Peter that day when he confessed that you're the Christ, the Lord, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus came into this world to accomplish our salvation, to, uh, to live a life of holiness and righteousness, and to give himself as a ransom for many. As I mentioned this morning, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And it's in this mission of uh, uh, teaching the disciples to be fishers of men that he enlists us to participate in bringing the gospel to those in the world who are without God and without hope. Verse 10 reminds us that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. That word for workmanship can mean any, anything made, anything that God has created, or anything that man has created, but it often refers to a fabric, a product. And it made me think of the tabernacle. When God instructed Moses about building the tabernacle in the wilderness, he gave men like Bezalel and Aholiab wisdom and skill in craftsmanship, embroidery work, in constructing the temple, the framework. All of that required uh, not only the gifts that the people brought, but the skills to put it together and to construct it. As I said this morning, it reminds me, the plan of redemption reminds me of my wife making quilts. And when she's finished and it's all folded up, she'll take it and unfold it and show me the beautiful handiwork and the intricate detail. And that's in a similar way what God is doing all through history. He's unfolding his plan of redemption for us. And in the pages of Scripture, we are able to see the skill and the handiwork of God in his, his purposes and in his plan and in the accomplishment of Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. We are his workmanship. He is creating us as a tabernacle in which he wants to dwell. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, 
The apostle says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This supreme wonder of God's redemptive work in our lives excels above all the wonders of the world. I wonder if you've been to the Grand Canyon or to places where great monuments are uh, attracting crowds of people. What God is doing in the lives of his people is much more breathtakingly beautiful than any of those. God is at work in our lives and therefore we need to remember who we once were. In verses 11 and 12, the apostle says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are the called who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands, were at that time apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Here is the great apostle Paul who was once Saul of Tarsus, the rabbi who persecuted the church and sought to destroy it. As a Jew, he hated the Gentiles, the dogs on the outside. And yet when Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, he was humbled and he began to discover this wonderful work that God is doing in history to create a new humanity, to make one new humanity out of all the diverse ethnic groups of the world. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. He is in his writings, always amazed and bursts forth in praise to God for this wonderful work that God is doing. If you look at verses 1 through 3, you see that this is true of all of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the age of this world and according to the practice of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among them we also once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. One of my favorite things in the family of God is to hear testimonies. If I meet you, it won't be long before I ask you to tell me your story about how you came to Christ. It thrills me to see the work that God is doing in your life and in my life. Think of it. Once dead in our trespasses and sins and like Jesus resurrected from the dead by the same power that brought him up from the grave, God has commanded the light to shine in the hearts of his people. I was born and raised in a Christian home. But I do remember, I think, these the early stirrings in my heart when my mother was reading Bible stories to me and tucking me in, into bed at night. I remember be, being awakened to the things of God. I remember uh, gradually as I, I went into my teen years coming to the realization that I was a sinner and I needed to turn to Christ. I remember kneeling in tears and asking the Lord Jesus to forgive me and to send His Spirit into my life. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And just as God at the beginning commanded the light to shine by the word of God, let there be light when the gospel is being preached or when you're sharing this good news with your friends or neighbors, 
God, in a mysterious and wonderful way, says, let there be life. And we're born again. We begin to desire the things of God. We still struggle with the old man. We still struggle with sin and temptation. And there are times when we wonder if we'll, we'll ever be able to grow and mature and overcome these things. But in remembering who we were once were, made alive together in Christ, saved by grace, verses 7 and 9, 7 to 9, and then uh, apart from Christ, without hope and without God in the world, verses 11 and 12, when we think about this and remember this, it helps us to have the heart of Christ for the lost. It helps us, if we are too proud to acknowledge that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, living according to the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the mind, however um, extensive that was, we were born again by the pure mercy of God. Secondly, we need to realize our present position in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up and seated us together with him in the heavenly places. I, I touched on that this morning. We are members of, heavenly, of the heavenly parliament. We're seated with, with Christ in the heavenly places, with the angels and the spirits of just men made perfect, and we have authority in this world as we prayed this morning, as Elder John prayed this morning, that the Lord would frustrate the plans of world governments. The book of Revelation reminds us that the, the vials of wrath are poured out when the saints pray like that. God accomplishes His purposes through our life together with Christ. We need to remember that we were brought near by the blood of Christ. Now Paul is thinking about these Ephesian Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ, and there were surely Jewish believers in that church. And he's amazed that they're one together as a body of believers. The Gentiles were far away, and, and uh, it says that they were... Uh, they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. And in the days of Jesus, when, when people came into the temple, the stone temple, the more permanent temple that Herod had embellished and expanded into a magnificent place of worship, the Gentiles would come to a barrier that warned them not to go beyond that barrier, barrier on pain of death. But Paul here is saying that Jesus brought a bulldozer into the temple and has destroyed that, wall, that barrier, that wall of separation. We are now one together in Christ. We are Gentiles. Most of us, I don't know, maybe there's a, a descendant of the Jewish faith here, but we are Gentiles like these Ephesians who had formerly worshipped Diana, who had formerly um, lived according to the lusts of their flesh. And Paul is astounded and never ceases to be amazed at what God has done in bringing Jew and Gentile together in this church 
and he wants them to treasure this unity and to labor diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as he will say, I think, in chapter 4. We are fellow citizens. Our citizenship in this world is important, and we should be good citizens. But at the same time, Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to two nations, and we have a part to play in the advancement of Christ's eternal kingdom. We are members of the household of God. He's giving us here in chapter 2, near the end, these pictures to think about, to understand what the church is. We need to understand what this church is that Christ is building. We're, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're members of the household of God. We're family. But I, I want to underscore what he says in verses 20 to 22. We are members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the entire building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is fascinated with this idea that, that Christ has laid a foundation in the apostles and prophets. We have the foundation here in the inerrant Word of God, the Scriptures. This is our foundation. We, the church, are the pillar and ground of truth, as Paul says to Timothy. Paul says the same thing that Peter says, and I'll read from Peter after um, uh, a little bit, where Peter sp speaks of, us as living stones, quarried from the world, being built up together in a, into a spiritual house of worship. We need to realize who we are in Christ and, and, and the fact that we are members of the church that he's building. We are living stones. I like to think about the tabernacle, and I mentioned that earlier, in the wilderness to build this portable palace for the king who would dwell in their midst in his glory and the priest would minister there they built a tent they spent what would be today a couple of million dollars in, in gifts and in building that tabernacle they didn't have stones to build but they looked at the acacia trees in the wilderness if you've ever seen a picture of the acacia trees uh, you'll, you'll have that in your mind but they had to cut these down and somehow take from that trunk of the acacia tree 15-foot lengths of wood and cut them to about two and a quarter feet wide. A cubit is about from my elbow to my tip of my finger, so it was a cubit and a little more. But at 15 feet high, and they had to build them and, and shape them into a mortise and tenor kind of construction so that they would be fitly framed together. And of course, that, that uh, wood framework was covered with gold. And they took bars of wood covered with gold to, um, uh, to build it, to secure it, to make it strong and firm and immovable. But think about this. Just as the Lord has taken us as living stones, quarried us from the world, and 
chiseled and shaped and prepared us to place us in His temple. He's taken us like the Israelites have taken that acacia tree and cut and shaped and formed us. The work of the Holy Spirit to prepare us to be fitly framed together involves being convicted of sin and cut down and humbled in the presence of God, but shaped and formed so that we can be fitly framed and one body of Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks so sternly to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't you know that you're the temple of God? You're all caught up in this division and this strife and this envy. You're following in a party spirit other men and you're claiming um, that you're the people of God and yet you're, you're violating and uh, corrupting the church of God. He says in speaking to individuals, remember that you're the temple of God. Don't, don't commit sins against this body because you're one with Christ. Don't let it be joined to a harlot, whether it's literally physical or spiritual idolatry. But to the, to the corporate body, remember that we are the temple of God. And God dwells in the heavenly places, as we saw this morning in a very special way, manifesting His glory. And we know that when we worship, we are united with Christ. And somehow, in a mysterious way, we're here together, worshiping tonight in the presence of myriads of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. We've not come to Mount, uh, Mount Sinai that can be touched with all the gloom and thunder and lightning and terrifying voice of God. We've come to the new Jerusalem. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're here in celebration with the saints who have gone before and the angels who are in the presence of God. But God also dwells with us and within us. Jesus said, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit is in us and flowing like a river and washing us and renewing us. If we're thirsty, come to Jesus and He'll give us living water. And He will live by His Holy Spirit in us and among us. And therefore, let us be warned about strife and envy and rivalry. We need to rejoice that we are growing into a dwelling place of God. Paul says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Paul warned those Corinthians that if they defiled this temple where God dwells, He would destroy them. And I think that means that sometimes churches get so caught up in strife and rivalry and, and envy that they end up dissolving. And we hear no more about them. Jesus talks about removing the lampstand from churches that have lost their first love. God takes seriously this call to holiness. 
he's, he's concerned that we understand that we are the holy dwelling place of God. I want to give just a brief quotation from Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Paul here in the 22nd verse again brings out this idea in whom all the building fitly framed together, fitly framed together. He uses that very same idea in the fourth chapter when in speaking about the body, he says, from whom Christ, the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by, by that which every joint supplies. Now, all that is quite simple in the case of the body. But is it as evident in the case of a wall, a building? The only way to understand it, according to the apostle, is to grasp the idea that this is a vital and living building. It's not a mere building of stone. We, we need to understand that God is working in our lives in a living and active way through his word, molding and shaping and forming us and placing us in the body of Christ. And Paul will go on to say, labor diligently to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We have denominations out of necessity. We have differences of opinion about secondary doctrines, doubtful issues. But Paul says to the Romans, Welcome one another, but not for the purpose of disputing about doubtful issues. Let's focus on the things that unite us, the central truths of the gospel, the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let us rejoice and glory in what God is doing in building up this spiritual house of worship and not be caught up in a spirit of envy and rivalry. This is a wonderful and amazing thing, and I said earlier that Peter mentions this also in his epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I won't read the whole thing, but he says, Coming to him as to a living stone, who is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Scripture says, Look, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him shall never be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, rejected Christ. He came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him, and Jesus willingly endured the humiliation of their mockery and the soldiers spitting in his face and, and, and whipping him and, and beating him and nailing him to the cross, all because he loved you and me. He has us by name on his heart and on his shoulders like the high priest. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's praying for each of us by name, even now. He sees us in this plight, in this world, and he longs for us to finish our journey and to be welcomed into the eternal kingdom with celebration and joy. Even the angels long to see this glorious spectacle. Often when I'm driving past a construction site, I think of this greater construction, this greater building site that God is investing his time and, and 
and, and his love in. He's building us up into a glorious temple. One afternoon when Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple, this magnificent temple with many buildings that Herod had embellished, they said to Jesus, look at these magnificent buildings. And Jesus turned to them and warned them. There will come a time, and I think he was speaking in 40 years, when the Romans would come and destroy that temple and those buildings, and not one stone would be left upon another. If we think about it, that's what Paul was warning in his letter to the Corinthians. This congregation, made up of living stones and and a part of the greater picture, can be destroyed by divisiveness and strife. I want to read something that I wrote in June of 2003. It was in a church newsletter that some young ladies in our church were putting together. And I want to tie this into chapter 3, verse 10, so that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Paul is saying there that the angels learn something about God's manifold wisdom by looking at what God is doing here. And when they see people of diverse backgrounds living as one and in harmony and in unity, they marvel. Lloyd Jones used the analogy of the prison. The white light is divided up into the the beautiful colors of the spectrum. And the church is like a prism to show the angels the manifold wisdom of God. See what I can do. Rejoice with me when one sinner repents. Rejoice with me when brothers and sisters in Christ live in unity and harmony and love that the world cannot understand. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote, God willed to appoint the angels to care for our salvation. Consequently, they attend sacred assemblies. They're here watching. And the church is for them a theater in which they marvel at the varied and manifold wisdom of God. Think of it. Angels are leaning over heaven's balcony, sitting on the edge of their seat, watching the drama of God's amazing grace unfold in the lives of his people. Jonathan Edwards called them the nobles and barons of the court of heaven. They are greater in power and glory than humans, yet they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Edwards suggested that this assignment may have been the occasion of the fall of Satan and his followers, a third of the angels. Such a demeaning task was beneath Lucifer and his nobles. But for the holy angels, it is a ravishing experience. Preaching on Ephesians 3, verse 10, Jonathan Edwards wrote, the the title of his sermon, The Wisdom of God Displayed in the Way of Salvation. Edwards proclaimed, It is mentioned as a wisdom such as they had never seen before, now 4,000 years since the creation. In all that time, the angels had always beheld the face of God, and had been studying God's works of creation, yet they never till that day had seen anything like that, never knew how manifold God's wisdom is as now they knew it by the church 
The church in Ephesus was made up of probably many common slaves and people of different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, living together, an unimaginable thing to see in the world. The angels hereby see a great and wonderful manifestation of the glory of God. The happiness of angels as well as of men consists very much in beholding the glory of God. The excellency of the divine being is a most delightful subject of contemplation to the saints on earth, but much more to the angels in heaven. The more holy any being is, the more sweet and delightful will it be to him to behold the glory and beauty of the supreme being. Therefore, beholding the glory of God must be ravishing to the holy angels who are perfect in holiness and never had their minds leavened with sin. The manifestations of the glory of God are as it were the food that satisfies the angels. They live thereon. It is their greatest happiness. Do you, do you delight to see what God is doing in bringing sinners to himself in peace and reconciliation? Do you delight to see what God is doing in the church? C.H. Spurgeon in 1880 preached a sermon on 1 Peter 1. 9 to 12, titled, Your Personal Salvation. And of course, with a flair for the dramatic, he tells us of a window opened towards this fallen world and heavenly beings looking down upon the earth as if heaven itself had no such object of attraction as Christ and his salvation. Methinks, if I saw an angel intently gazing upon any ob object, if I were a passerby, I should stop and look too. Yea, all heaven to this day has never ceased its amazement at the dying Son of God made sin for men. And will none of you spare an hour to look this way and see your best friend? When I was a little boy contemplating attending kindergarten formal schooling for the first time, I remember lying on the grass in the backyard with my friend Leon, my neighbor, who was an older brother figure to me. We were looking for four-leaf clovers, but I was really there to ask him what it would be like to go to kindergarten. Yeah, I, the prospect was uh, overwhelming and intimidating to me. And he comforted me. He explained to me what it would be like. And then later, when I was in first grade, I remember Mrs. Johnson was a wonderful teacher. She, she taught us how to do ceramics, but she also was insistent that if we, if we boys fell in the mud and got our jeans muddy, we would have to take them off and drape them over the radiator and wear an art apron for the rest of the afternoon. Now, I had a friend who delighted in that. I mean, he was a show-off. That, that didn't bother him a bit, but it horrified me. And so I, I slipped in the mud one afternoon at recess, and I got my, my, my jeans muddy from hip to toe. And I went to Leon, and I said, Leon, what am I going to do? Woe is me. What am I going to do? And he showed me. He took me over to a tree, and he showed me how to wipe my jeans off on the grass and get most of the mud off. And I went back into class and sat there at my desk, horrified at the thought that Mrs. Johnson was walking up and down the aisles, and she would surely see my muddy jeans, and I would be up front in an art apron, half-exposed. 
She, I suppose, probably noticed and knew that I was a tender-hearted little boy who didn't need to be humiliated. But one day later, when I was in high school, in college, I think it was college, I was lying in bed, and I remembered that, and I remembered Leon's love, and I just was melted into tears, and I wept, and I wept, and I said, thank you, Lord, for Leon and for his love for me, but more importantly, thank you for your love for me, a sinner dead in my trespasses, and you've loved me, and you sent your son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know the love of Christ? Paul prays that we will be strengthened in the inner man so that we can bear the weight of this glory, this love of God in all of its breadth and length and height and depth so that we can know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. This is God's purpose for us. As we think of God's love and the glory of God in His love for us, we need to contemplate these things. We need to remember who we once were and where we are now in Christ and, and rejoice that we're growing together into a, a dwelling place of God with saints that we will know for all eternity, brothers and sisters in Christ who will join us in, in worship and praise for all eternity and serving God in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. I'll leave you with one last illustration, and that's from Jonathan Edwards. He's a great colonial preacher, uh, preacher from the colonial days. He did not mean this for public publication. He wrote it in his diary, but he would go out into the uh, countryside like Jesus would to be alone and contemplate the things of God. And he was a deep thinker. He was always thinking about this plan of redemption and, and God's love for us. And as he rode out into the country on his horse, he found a place to meditate and he slipped off the horse. And for about an hour, he was just overcome by the love of God. He wept on the neck of that horse for an hour, just overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's why Paul prays that we would be strengthened with might in the inner man. This is a glory that would annihilate us. Jonathan Edwards spoke of only in that moment wanting to be annihilated in Christ, to, to just be dissolved and to be one with Christ. This is who we are. We are God's holy temple in the Lord, and He delights to dwell in our midst. Don't defile this temple with rivalry and strife. Crucify your, your, your sinful thoughts, your evil suspicions about your brother and their motives. Think the best of your brother and sister in Christ. And let's together be a temple wherein the Shekinah glory shines brightly. The cloud of glory hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Shekinah glory came to the temple that Solomon built in a manifest and physical way. But in Ezekiel we're told that the glory departed from the temple because of this the glory cloud wasn't there in Herod's temple, but it's here in our lives. It's here among us now, tonight. I see it on your faces. I see the radiance and the joy. This is a, is a good sign. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I know that you're, you're God's elect because when I preached the gospel, it came with power and authority. And I sense that you are God's people 
Don't be discouraged. Know that God will perfect you and complete the work that He's begun. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you on this earthly journey heavenward. Amen. Now, I slipped the benediction in before the singing of this psalm. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 119G. And I want you to please stand for prayer, and then in following the prayer, we'll sing Psalm 119G. Father, thank you for these dear saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the way that the Word has come tonight in power at your anointing. Preachers sometimes speak in their own authority, but how we long to preach in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, to preach to God's elect who are being built up into a holy habitation for the Lord, a temple in which you delight to dwell. Dwell in all your glory in the midst of these people. Help them to be a light in this dark world. In Jesus' name.